Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Today. Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast. This is season two, episode, let me just count it off, five, with Termima Anam. I've just got back from holiday and I'm feeling very much like it's my first day back at work after two weeks of being on holiday, which is hard for me. I've not been doing much. I reread some novels. I read some new novels. I played with my kids. I saw my dad and my sister and I ate a stupid amount of food and drank a lot of coffee and other things and it was just glorious like it was just one of those holidays that I didn't do much and it would be boring to recount to you all the stuff that I didn't do I guess the main thing is I'm just not very good at taking holidays Uh, part of me knows that a holiday is probably for a writer brain a bit of work anyway because on holiday I go to new places I observe new people I have new conversations and hear overhear new conversations and I give my brain some space to think and imagine and all the rest of it. Ah, the curse of the writer, always writing in their head. How self-aggrandizing of me to <laughs> to go, oh, I, two weeks off was actually work. Anyway, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is why I've got such a weird intro this week. Because it's my first day back after a holiday and I haven't had a holiday since... I think 2019, I may have taken some time off in 2020, but like, did anyone really take any time off in 2020? Anyway, the point is, today is my first day back at my desk and I'm looking out onto the street where I live and autumn has finally decided to stop pretending it to be summer like it has for so much of August and it's grey and there's a chill in the air and when my alarm woke me up at 6am so I could do... The yoga that I promised myself I'm going to do every single day and then somehow managed to not. It just, it wasn't light outside. So I chose to just stay in bed and not do yoga. No point is, I'm back and it's the Brown Baby Podcast. Welcome. This is a podcast about parenting and it asks the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful in bleak times that make us feel so sad and angry? And each week I invite a parent on to chat to me about their parenting journeys, how they're navigating these tricky times with their kids, how we have those big, important conversations with our kids and how to still have fun and enjoy the world. I hope this is a hopeful podcast about parenting and it's inspired by my, 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 can you tell that I've been on holiday? I can't even say my, by my, by my memoir, Brown Baby, I'm not even going to edit that out, mate, by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home, which has been out since February this year and I love that people keep finding it and choosing to buy it when there are so many other books you could be buying and tagging me into brilliant reviews and kind thoughts about different bits that have resonated with you please keep doing that I love seeing them even if I don't always respond it's just nice to know that the book is finding readers and for those of you who have not bought it yet here is the bit where I go please buy it uh please buy it I said it in two different modes one was like desperate and the other one was assured please buy it um yes so today I this week I talked to the incredible author Tamima Anam Tamima is the author of four novels 
uh, her most recent one is the one that we spend a lot of time talking about because it has so much crossover with her life. It's called The Startup Wife, and it is a hilarious skewering of the sexism of the tech industry. It follows Asha Ray, the inventor of a new utopian app, who soon finds herself sidelined in her own work and in her own industry and starts to wonder why. And there, there is a similar starting point for Tamima, who is the wife of a startup entrepreneur, and um you know found herself taking some some of her own time out from her career to to be a parent and we talk about that and she's such a brilliant lovely funny warm person to talk to uh so yeah as well as the book and the inspiration behind the book and how that kind of crosses over with her parenting journey we also talk about letting our kids use tablets uh if they understand what we do for a living and the tech industry is a problem with women it's a great really important chat i really love talking to tamima we are every time our paths cross i just think i need to spend more time with you tamima's book the startup wife is out now and you can get it from my affiliate bookshop that on bookshop.org the link is in the show notes um so yeah just that reminder that the podcast is free please support it by buying my book by buying tamima's book and by shouting about this podcast on social media i'm not on there much any anymore because you know my brain doesn't like it and so any help in getting the word out there would just be super appreciated thank you so much to all of you who do do that and to those of you who are going to do that after this episode so without further ado season through two <laughs> season two episode five of the brown baby podcast tamima anam welcome to the brown baby podcast tamima how are you today I'm well, Nikesh. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a thrill. I love the podcast. I love your book. It's really a real pleasure for me to be here. Oh, mate, like, no, thank you for making the time. I know, like, I'm talking to you the week after The Startup Wife, your new novel has come out. And so the fact that you've got an hour to spare where you're like, sure, I'll talk to this loser is amazing. Thank you so much. Not at all. And also, I think the thing to be really clear about is that you things do happen when a book comes out but it's not like that many things happen <laughs> <laughs> i'm not doing things all the time i'm mostly just sitting and feeling anxious about the book or trying to tell myself it doesn't matter so this is really like such a pleasure yeah it's funny like the the advice i always give to writers is the advice i don't take myself which is like once a book comes out it belongs to readers and it doesn't belong to you so it's really important to just start the next thing and just go whatever will be will be and my publicist will tell me what I need to where I need to be in attendance at and I might get a sales update when I need need to and all that but actually the reality is I'm like I am obsessively checking everything all the time absolutely I mean it's there's just I, I said, I wrote to my publicist yesterday, and I said, my ego is as fragile as a Parmesan crisp. So just remember <laughs> that when you're telling me anything. And don't tell me anything I, don't, I can't hear. So um, The yeah. Startup Wife is about so many things. It's about, um, it's about marriage, and it's about technology, and it's about um, the sort of how how in those spaces women become very invisible and uh, about this amazing, amazing protagonist, Asha coming, uh, you know, just reclaiming herself throughout the novel. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about where the novel started for you? Absolutely. And I think it's very relevant to what we're going to talk about because this is my post children novel. Mm. And I wrote three novels. I wrote a trilogy set in Bangladesh um, following the lives, you know, of women and three generations of a family. And I have to say, Nikesh, like the body count in those books was really, really high. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had children in a pretty traumatic way. And I just could not write about dead children anymore. And I've, I felt viciously, like violently, like rejecting that mode. And as you know, when you, as you did in your memoir, you have to go to these very, very dark places in your heart in order to bring that up. More so for you because yours was a memoir. Um, so I really respect that. But sometimes it's harder to go there or it feels like my sort of dharma at that moment after I had the two children was to write something that was joyful. And even though there are 
there's politics and there's feminism and there's the invisibility of women in this novel, it's fundamentally um, not about pain. It's about joy. Mm. And so for me, that was like a totally different writing experience from start to finish. Yeah. And, and also uh, in contrast to that tr- trilogy, the, this feels so much sparkier. Like there's the, it's, it's really funny in places. Like you don't shy away from the kind of the absurdity of these worlds that she finds herself in. Uh, w- was that part of the joy, you know, trying to push for, for humorous situations and bits of like uh, tech slapstick and <laughs> what, what have you? Yeah. Um, so I have been a startup wife for the last 10 years. My husband founded a tech company within months of our getting married. And I've been on the board from the beginning. And I've also worked there. And um, I mean, you've had office jobs before, Nikesh. I mean, there's something really amazing about going to an office, writing some emails, meeting some people, and then going home and saying, wow, I did a really good day's work. So the, I've had the problem some is, great... You've, you, sorry, sorry to interrupt. The problem is you've just described yeah. something that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but, I know, that's yeah, true. Yeah. It's true. Sorry to interrupt. But it used to exist, and it used to feel a very refreshing change from my writing life, which was full of angst and, and you know, never seemed to have a, a beginning of a day and an end of a day. Um, so I worked at the startup, and really I just wanted to satirize that world because it is so particular. It has its own language. The language is quite metaphorical. The way people talk about business, about their products, about how they're going to change the world with some app that they've produced. Um, And I just, for me, that was um, like the material was right there. And then I just had to figure out whether I could be funny. And that was a challenge. And you I are. No, if I could pull that off. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you are in real life. So why wouldn't you be on the page as well? Well, you just never know. And actually, my husband said to me, because I was like, I'm feeling like, what is the connection? You know, is this me? Is this book me or are those books me? And he was like, well, in life, you're all about the comedy. So this is yeah. this this voice is more like the way that you speak and the way that you are in the world. So, so yeah, I feel like even though Asha is... Um, born in Queens and is a New Yorker and is a coder and in some ways her life is very different from mine I feel like I voiced her you know I feel like I put a lot of myself in that Mm. character I'm sure I won't be the only one to make this crass comparison so I apologize because you've probably had to deal with it a lot but what's interesting is having watched a show like Silicon Valley which is all about dudes in this space and the irony of it is that the writers couldn't write decent female characters in a world where there are no you know these guys would not be friends with females in in any ways whatsoever and obviously like stuff that came out about a female cast member finding that environment really really tough to deal with and then you have something like this which kind of really really um almost it's like a satire of the satire that is silicon valley which i found really really interesting and also interestingly after this straight after this i'm talking to this amazing um this amazing academic called meredith broussard who um she was involved in this this film uh, that just came out on netflix called coded reality which is all about ai and um, the coded gaze and i met her at a literature festival and she's she the way she talks about sexism and racism within ai is really fascinating and so like the fact that you know you're kind of adding a hyper visibility to the you know what has already been canonized as an invisibility i thought i thought was really really amazing and it's such a fun book as well you know it's not a book that like um ever tries to kind of polemicize at any point it's always like it's very light on its feet and i think that's why it's so powerful thank you so much you're very kind i mean i feel like the thing about the tech world is that it's the word disrupt is haloed in the tech world And they're disrupting everything, like the way you order your pizza, the cars you drive, the way you do your laundry. I mean, there's like an app for everything. There's a service for everything. And they're disrupting everything. But in fact, the structures of power are completely the same. There are young white men who run these companies, who work at these companies. And although there's a lot of lip service about, you know, diversity in tech and hiring and and talent and all that, um, it really is just as it ever was. And that is obviously going to be the case when certain kinds of people write the AI codes 
that are going, you know, that are going to be the artificial intelligence of the future and determining, you know, it's going to have the same biases that the people who built it already have. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things I created was a, a kind of uh, a tech incubator called Utopia. And I purposely made Utopia have a lot of female founders in it. So there's a lot of women running tech companies. And obviously that's, totally made up because you would never have a place like utopia that was mostly run by women that was just a fantasy of mine <laughs> um so t- tell me a little bit about um you, you know obviously as someone who was a startup wife and where, when was the when was your last novel out it was it wasn't 10 years ago it was it was sooner than that no it was in 2016 2016 so i'm so sorry um so in the in those in the in that time you know you've you've had kids and you've been the aforementioned startup wife and um i I remember you talking a little bit uh, about feeling like you had to put your career on hold or you had to put writing on hold for a little bit when um when you became when you became a parent for the first time uh and i wondered if that was something you felt comfortable talking about Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that my journey towards becoming a parent was very, very fraught. So like a lot of women, and this is something that we talk about more, but we still don't talk about enough. um, I had a lot of trouble having children. So I was already by the time my son was born, I was already 37. And I had had many miscarriages. And it was it was an extremely challenging thing just to get pregnant and maintain the pregnancy. But then when I was six months pregnant, um, I discovered I had like life-threatening preeclampsia, which is when you have a lot of things associated with high blood pressure. So my son had to be delivered 10 weeks premature. And he spent three months at the, in the special care baby unit at the Homerton Hospital in East London. And I think that was probably like the most life-changing event of my life. But it took me a long time to really understand the deep kind of wounds that that had kind of, because at the time, and as you know, as a parent, you just kind of go into autopilot and you just think, okay, well, this is really, really hard, but I just have to get through it and I'll worry about myself later. Um, I'll have a nervous breakdown in 10 years or something, but I can't (laughs) afford to do it now. And um, anyone who's had a premature baby will know that um, there are certain physical kind of demands on you that you just have to rise to the occasion of. So I was very, very ill, but I had to... um, pump breast milk because um, preemie babies are dependent on breast milk much more than full-term babies are not to go into a lot of detail but um, but because your body is not uh, has not had its full time to be pregnant you're not ready to do it so you have to really um, you have to basically attach yourself to a breast pump for every two hours around the clock day and night until your body says okay now I'm feel like I can do this. So it was really physically grueling. It was deeply traumatic. I felt an enormous amount of guilt because I felt like I had not been able to host this child in the way that it deserved. Um, and um, so I think that in any case, if I had had a full-term child who was perfectly healthy, there would have been a lot of challenges to writing, being a startup wife. My husband was traveling all the time and having children. But this was like vastly magnified by the way that the children Mm. arrived. And they were both premature, although the second one was less so. Um, So absolutely, I felt, I mean, I wouldn't say that I put my career on hold, but I put um, my ability to put myself in the center of the family on hold. Mm. And I would say that I only recently, maybe with the writing of this book, felt able to reclaim that space. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And I hope it wasn't too uncomfortable sort of re, re going through it um and the the interesting thing about asha in the book is her um she's she's the kind of character who who you kind of like there's there's <laughs> i was about to be really stupid and i stopped myself she's not uh no she's Oh no, I'm not even going to say because it's so ridiculous. I was going to no, please <laughs> say so say you can always edit it out. Yeah, I was going to say she's not the she's not a nobody uh, puts baby in the corner type oh, because yes. 
yes. She would, you know, she doesn't need someone to tell people to not put her in the corner. You know, she's, um, she's sort of, she it, arrives on the page for like really fully formed and it's become so much about, you know, getting the world to realign to who she is rather than adjust yeah. herself to the world, which I think is a really interesting choice in, in, in fiction. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Asha is that she is so much feistier and so much more confident than I was have ever been or possibly could ever be, which is, as you know, the sort of joy of writing fiction is that you can pretend to be other people momentarily yeah. and inhabit their strengths. Um, but the thing about Asha is also that she gives all her power away to Cyrus. And so you, you think, oh, a person like that is never going to be subject to the same limitations that I am or that other women are. But in fact, and as he says to her at the end or towards the end, like, you know, he says, you didn't, I didn't take something from you. You gave it to me. I didn't even want it. You know, so basically she builds this app. It becomes super famous and she makes him the CEO and she kind of hides in the background, but she does that. You know, he doesn't want to be at the front. Um, but of course, once she gives him the power, he absolutely takes it mm. and runs with it yeah. and becomes a bit of a megalomaniac. But um, I think to me, that's the interesting thing about women in power, which is that often it's not necessary. It's that we have internalized patriarchy to such an extent. And she says in one line, she says, well, you know, um, my immigrant heart just wants to do what I'm told, you know, and mm. she feels she feels the pull of that um, sort of second generation kind of trauma of like wanting to fit in. And it's no um, kind of coincidence that her husband is a white man and she's a Bangladeshi immigrant. And so she she just wants to behave in a way, even though she doesn't want to behave. So I think that was, uh, but, but the thing about, the interesting thing about Asha is that um, she, um, she's a kind of stealth. She's stealthily subjugated by the forces of, of patriarchy. Mm. It, it, she's not obviously. She's, she's very sassy on the outside, but she gives away a lot on the inside. Yeah, almost, almost, you know, fitting herself into a system that has kind of been allowed to be the way it is. It, it, yeah. it made me think of, it made me think of the, the sort of, I, I guess it, really clarified for me this thing that I've been thinking about a lot which is I guess you know certainly on social media on one one of the aforementioned apps it's very easy to criticize individuals for wrongdoings but in so doing you often make it about the individual who has done the wrongdoing rather than a system that allows them to mm. operate in the way they do and you cert certainly feels feels like that in the book where you know this you know cyrus is allowed to be become the way he is because the system has been set up for him to become to go that way um is is that something that you've kind of seen like experience firsthand that kind of the the way the system these sorts of structures allow for this kind of bad behavior this kind of gaslighting this kind of um sort of entitlement to power Absolutely. I mean, I've sat in boardrooms and I've been in investment pitches and I have watched this kind of startup world from really from an outsider's point of view. But it certainly feels to me like and I was trying to imagine, like, what if I was a founder of this company? What would how would I have been treated? And I know for sure that it wouldn't have been the same because they, there's just a kind of bro culture that is so deep in the sort of bones of tech and of any industry really and so for a woman trying to kind of um say okay not only am i the brains behind this but i'm going to stand in front i'm going to sit at the head of the table i mean that is you know it feels impossible even to asha who is like you know really knows what she wants yeah kind of goes for it does it make you think about what your kids future relationship with technology will be I get well, that's a really great question, and I—I I mean, what is your kind of policy on things like apps and screen time? And I mean, my my kids don't have much access to to them. You know, they're. I, I remember someone saying to me once that kids who are just sort of sat in front of things um, are are a lot more passive. 
than kids who you engage in active role play and my kids really engage in active role play you know we read together a lot we we play lots of imagined games where you know we act out legos but we also like role play other things um and they so their interest in screens is much more one of curiosity i mean they can sit and watch tv for hours who can't um but their interest in screens they get bored really quickly or they get stuck in a repetitive loop of a thing that they might be doing without any real desire to kind of move beyond it like my dad bought them these my dad bought them these frozen watches they're like smart watches where you can like take photos and videos and record your voice and, and stuff which made me really uncomfortable um yeah but then I sort of I sort of knew in my head give it a day and like yeah they ran out of battery and they were handed to me and I charged them up and they haven't asked asked for them since the day they were given to them Whereas there's that is a parenting that is a parenting win, Nikesh. Yeah. I think that's like says some great things about um, your parenting. I have a question though about that. Were your parents strict with you about things like TV when you were growing up? Oh yeah, very very strict about TV. Isn't it totally? But don't you find it very interesting? My parents were so strict about TV. My dad was a communist. I mean, material possessions, anything, and when it comes to their grandchildren. That, I mean, I saw that watch and I was like, that is totally something that my parents would get for my kids and I would be the one to ban it. And I would be like, why are you giving this to them? But I remember my childhood when the consumption of things like media and objects was so limited, both by resources because, you know, they didn't have the money to buy me lots of whatevers. But also I remember when I was 10, I asked my dad for a Barbie doll and he was so offended He said, I will buy you a Barbie doll if you write me a letter explaining exactly why this object (laughs) has value to you. Oh, wow. Um, So I I admire it now, but I was, I've just found it so terrible that everyone else had these access to these things that I didn't. But but when it comes to their grandchildren, they're just completely, they've totally changed their tune. Yeah, I mean, my my dad is very much uh, the grandparent who lives in a different city to his grandchildren that these are guilt presents um yeah but but my my kid came back from school yesterday and was talking about how they're gonna they had their first class in learning to code and i was like wow whoa you are far too young to be able to hack into the main wow. mainframe, my friend. But I suppose. How old is your was your child the one who's learning to code? She's six. She's six age? and a half. And I was okay. But, but, so my son is seven. Yeah, same age. Uh, is that is that something that he's he's done as well? No, no, and that's kind of amazing. So were you against it, or how did how did it make you feel? It felt like it was too soon. No, I I, I think it's I, I mean it's it like it's I guess it's like learning a language, right? Like it it will help her see the world in in different ways it but i guess i was interested to kind of let it play out and see whether that then means she's much more interested in screens um mm. yeah so we'll see but uh, what 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 is your how do, uh, sorry i'm so inarticulate today how how what <laughs> what is your and your partner's kind of attitude towards tech and and your kids are they are they really into it do they kind of know that because Baba is doing it and you know you're you have an involvement in it that that means that they get involved or are they still a bit yeah I mean basically we are very very strict on screens um they don't get any screen time they get to watch movies um and because of the pandemic we started like family movie time on weekends so that's like a pretty sacred thing and it means that every you know afternoon on a Saturday and a Sunday, we kind of get a break and they just sit in front of the TV and we sort of do our whatever, you know, have a little moment to, to catch our breath and make dinner and et cetera. Um, but they're not allowed to use apps or iPads or YouTube or anything. Um, and, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting with your daughter encoding. I feel a little bit like, is my child going to be tech literate enough like, is he going to feel like he's missing out? Because he literally does not really know how to use the iPad. And when we were doing homeschooling, there were other kids who were like chatting, you know, like typing into the group chat and changing screens. And he was a little bit lost. 
Um, so, so I'm feeling a bit like maybe we were a bit too strict with that, but it has worked out great because mm. he's a really big reader. And I think that reading is basically the key to all forms of intelligence yeah. in the world. I, I agree <laughs> with you so much. I, what I want to do, because they've got the rest of their lives to be on, on whatever apps and tablets and computers that they, that they want. But if I can... I, if I can push for reading to be um, part of their lives for as long as possible, then in theory that will sustain it through the difficult teenage years, uh, which is obviously like the key time for to lose. Oh readers. my god, absolutely! I mean, were you a big reader when you were growing up? Yeah, but mostly because I was a shy, lonely kid. Like I, it was yeah. me, me and my, me and my superhero yeah. comic books. That that they were my wow. friends, you know. Yeah. Right, of course. I've read about that, but I, um, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think loneliness kind of saved me. Um, I was an only child. Um, I, my parents would take me to the library every weekend. We would check out books and we would bring them home, and that was basically all I did. Mm. I didn't have a lot of friends. I had no siblings. So, um, but I think it's you know it was the key really the fact that I was reading. So I hope that in some form, and I know there are so many dis- more distractions in the world today than there were many, many years ago when I was growing up, but I hope that I can give a little bit of that to my children. Mm. The other thing that um, about my childhood that I have failed to replicate is that my parents... So I didn't grow up in Bangladesh. I was born there, but I didn't grow up there. We moved all over the world, and learning to sing Tagore songs was like a huge part of my childhood. The Bangla teacher would come and the singing teacher would come every weekend. And it was the absolute scourge of my weekend because I just (laughs) wanted to not do that. And it was always someone who was like half asleep or just really didn't want to be there. You know, someone, if you imagine like, you know, I live in New York City or Paris or something. And it's like a student who's kind of like doing it as a weekend job. And it's like, oh, my God, this five year old or this seven year old, like why am I here? (laughs) And I hated it too. Um, I wish I had done that um, with my kids and I completely failed. I completely failed on Bangla. I completely failed on the singing. So it's, it's a real stain (laughs) on my parental reputation. (laughs) Well, you know, I I think I've told this story on the podcast before. Sorry, listeners, but um, I had such grand plans to make my kids bilingual. uh, And I read books about teaching them to be bilingual but then the realization of how hard it was really struck me because in order to do it you have to talk to them in you know for in my case Gujarati all the time and you have to reply to, it has to be the language of the home and to the point where my partner who doesn't speak uh, Gujarati would just have to kind of know what know the gist of what we're talking about enough in order to reply in English or what have you I don't, I'm not that good. <laughs> like I haven't, I, I haven't know, spoken Gujarati properly in like 10 years since, since I moved out of London and therefore like we're seeing my grandparents and, and aunts and uncles regularly, you know. But do you feel guilty about it? I mean, is it something that really bothers you? Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah. It feels like a, pers- it feels like yeah. a personal failure. How, how about you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think the mixed race thing is really kind of, key here mm. um you know my partner is white and he he would love to learn bangla but i have to be the one to speak bangla to him and to the children and what happened was so my son was born our son was born severely premature and then he had a very serious eating disorder which meant that he could not eat solid food until he was five years old and the only reason he now eats solid food is we took him to a hospital in new york that was specialized in pediatric feeding disorders and they taught him how to chew food. And his entire infancy and childhood was consumed with us trying to figure out how to keep him alive. Um, Literally give him enough calories so he would stay alive and not be very, very ill. And I was too tired to teach him another language. Mm. I I was too tired to speak to him in Bangla. It was exhausting for me. And I just, and I also, I think was a little bit traumatized by all the Bangla that was really... You know, Bengalis are obsessed with their language, as you know. And I remember coming home from school and my dad refusing to speak to me unless I narrated the whole story of my day to him in Bangla. So I think that those two things just made it really difficult for me. But I feel 
incredibly, I feel like I've taken something from them. Like they could have been totally bilingual. I have this friend whose husband is British. She's Bangladeshi. Her parents are fluent in Bangla because she spoke to them in Bangla, but her husband spoke to them in Chinese. And so they also speak fluent Chinese. And I just feel like, oh my God, I am the worst parent in the world. My kids don't even speak Bangla, much less Chinese. Can you imagine? Yeah, but so anyway, you know how much time they spend on tablets when our kids are reading comic books. <laughs> so who's, who's, the, so. who's the real winner? Some, something's got to Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um... You, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but I, I sort of feel like it's it's an it's always an interesting thing to to delve into. Um, I guess when we think about ourselves as parents, we look at the things that worked with our parents and the things that we want to be in in opposition to with our parents. Are there are there certain things that you take from your parents as like good practice that um, that worked on you, or, and are there things that you're like I'm doing the opposite of that? my friend because <laughs> um yeah that's a really great question um so i have incredible parents i mean they i i one of the things speaking of the startup wife and speaking of parenting and children um unlike a lot of south asian parents of that generation they had a love marriage not an arranged marriage and they have very much kept that sort of powerful connection between them. So I grew up in a, in a household where the adults really loved each other. Um, and the other amazing thing about them is that they really encouraged me to become a writer. So I didn't get the message like, oh, you must be an engineer or have a, get a job or do something practical. Um, they were super supportive of me becoming a writer. And it's partly because my father is a journalist and his father before him was a short story writer and a journalist. So I feel incredibly privileged to have been brought up in a household where um, the arts were valued. Mm. Not all the arts. Like I wanted to be an actress and my dad was like, that's really <laughs> impractical. You should be a writer. This was what he said to me. Um, but, I thought you were going uh, to be like, all, uh, you know, the arts are really appreciated in my in my house. Not all the arts. They hate con- contemporary interpretive dance <laughs> yeah well don't even know if they would uh that, that I, I didn't even bring that up you know because I was a pretty obedient child and being an actress is probably as far as I'm sorry about the horn outside um if you can hear that I was a pretty obedient child so the thing that I would not carry with me and I'm sort of in two minds about this I wonder how you feel about this I was terrified of my dad you know I found him totally scary and my kids are not afraid of their father and I think that's a really great gift having said that I think I think I sometimes my South Asian parenting mode kicks in and I think oh my god these children are so disobedient can you imagine what they're going to be like when they're teenagers 
part of the reason that I stayed in my room and read books was because I was afraid of my dad. So these kids are just going to be like, we're just going to do what we want, mom, because you did not um, scare us enough. Yeah, I mean, I think they feel completely at ease with um, saying no to me. Um, And I think, I hope that this will mean that we just have a much more open an honest relationship that we can talk about things that I didn't feel I could talk about with my parents. Um, so I, that's definitely something that I happily shed uh, from a sort of, you know, earlier generation of parenting. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. My, you know, my father was always the authoritarian, the silent authoritarian in the corner uh, for a large portion mm-hmm. of my life. And, you know, part, obviously part of the memoir is about me reevaluating that as an adult and and yes. coming towards him um but i didn't i never wanted my kids to ever think i was either a infallible or b the authoritarian um but i do mm-hmm. find myself on a daily basis saying if i spoke to my parents the way you guys speak to me or if my parents knew how you spoke to me they'd be outraged um but, but the- yes exactly i mean it, i think it's so interesting that giving them that freedom to be rebellious or to, or to challenge you um, while also feeling like, gosh, where is this going to, where's this yeah. going to end? <laughs> where is this going? Yeah. And we, we both have younger children, so we don't have teenagers yet. <laughs> we don't know ultimately where that, where that story goes. We're going to have to catch up every few years and be like, Hmm, how's that disobedience yeah. working out for you? How's that vulnerability working out for you? How's the infallibility yeah, this, doing? It's, it's a funny thing because, uh, and I, I'd be really interested to hear what you think of this. Um, you know, part part of giving them the agency to say no to things that they don't want to happen um, is obviously a great life lesson, especially for two girls who, uh, you know, and I don't want to be the one who's like, um, well, actually your no doesn't actually mean anything in this situation but there are times where i have to be like i don't care if you don't want to go for for to the shops to get some bread we have to get some bread you're coming uh which is it's like it's an interesting thing because like in their world the yes and the no are so finite there's no gray that you know everything's so black and white um and and so i do sort of feel hoist by the petard of like wanting them to feel like they have agency in, in decision making when it comes to stuff to do with them I know that's so interesting I mean I feel the same way especially about my daughter so I really delight in her sort of standing her ground and being quite stubborn and oftentimes quite difficult but then I also <laughs> have to parent her and I also have to get her from point A to point B and I have to make sure she eats and that she you know that she does the sort of basic kind of life things and it's always that kind of juggle between um that sort of impulse to be the sort of civilizing force in your children while also especially for your daughters knowing that the more determined and bullheaded they are the better they're going to do in life because the cards are really stacked Mm. against them um so yeah i'm completely on the same page with you on that um, and we're just going to have to see what happens. Yeah, really I, I suppose it, it does result in having to explain, a, spend a lot of time explaining why things have to be the way they are, which yes. is, I suppose, yes. a good thing because as a child, I it was never really explained to me why things had to be the way they are. Why do I have to yeah. go to yeah. this uh, person who's like a fake uncle's house and sit there where I could just oh stay here and watch football <laughs> or stay here and listen to rap on dad's stereo instead of on my Walkman. What do you think about that whole uncle thing? I mean, so I have some really deep thoughts about uncle culture, most of it bad. <laughs> but I remember spending a lot more time in the company of adults than my children do. So I will bend over backwards to make play dates and make sure they're entertained and do things that are appropriate for them. My parents just took me with them everywhere, you know, because there wasn't like we didn't grow up in South Asia where there's always a, you know, family member to kind of watch the kids. We lived in Paris or we lived, you know, we lived in tiny apartments in New York. And it was like, well, if we want to go somewhere, our kids just going to have to come with us. And I just I think that must have in a way been a good thing because, you know, you get to sort of inhabit this world that's slightly beyond you. Um but I don't know if the if that was the case for you. I mean, if you sort of remember being dragged to 
you know, lots of uncles' houses as I did. Yeah, until I was a teenager, and at which point everyone, you know, all of my young my sister and cousins all just stayed with me and I was the babysitter every weekend while my parents worked and and all the rest of it so like yeah like so I spent a large portion of my childhood like looking after people um but was was that I I hate being a stereotyper but was that an only child thing where you felt like you were in the company of adults quite a lot Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, so my parents, um, and it's interesting how this sort of slightly then echoed in my own life. So my parents had me, they were quite young and then they couldn't have children and they tried for many, many years. Um, and then they accidentally, my mother got pregnant with my sister when I was 13. So I was already fully grown. I was a teenager. So my main abiding memories of childhood are of being alone and of being, and of reading basically alone. Um, obviously like the best writers, I was not good at making (laughs) friends. I was not good at fitting in, in school. I was too weird. And you know, I don't know if you feel this way, Nikesh, but you're a few years younger than me, but it's only in the last few years that I've really come to peace with the kind of friendships that feel nourishing to me. Because when you're in school, um, my husband was homeschooled and I think was saved. He doesn't have, have a lot of high school trauma. Um, but in school, you just are expected to socialize in a particular way. And I was really, really bad at it. And now I know why, but I just didn't figure that out until really recently. And it's been a hugely satisfying kind of revelation to me. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way. I don't really feel like I made any lasting friendships until I was in my twenties. And even then that none of them were with people I went to university with. They were all people outside of university. Mm. But yeah, it's an interesting thing i think all of my most nourishing friendships at now are with other writers who have the same weirdness that i have and we know yeah. when to step back and give each yeah. other space and we know when to lean in yeah my last sort of regular question bef- uh, before i flip to the what the ones that i ask all of my guests are do you you know given that your partner is um a tech startup entrepreneur CEO, I don't yes. know his job title. Sorry. Yes, and all of those you things. are a writer. Uh, how much awareness of what you guys do do your kids have? Do they know what you do, do or do they? Is it also such such a mystery to them? Because I think for my kids, my my eldest is starting to understand that I am a writer with a little bit of a public profile. Because very occasionally, like weird things will happen, like a random person will come up and just say oh I really like your books and we'll both she'll be like who's that and I'll wow. be like, I have no idea or you know yeah like you know especially in lockdown she's seen that like loads of free books come to our house they don't go to my office anymore and, mm. and all that kind of stuff so she's starting to kind of go this guy isn't like is very different to the other fathers in in my school which which I I'm kind of intrigued by Yes. Well, I don't think my children uh, have a full understanding of, I think if I wrote children's books, they would be Mm. way more impressed. Um, I recently told my son that I know the children's book writer Alam Shaha, who if you don't have his books, you should definitely get them. He writes books about inventions, right? And about scientific. Yeah. Amazing. And I, I said, oh, I, you know, I just got a message from Alam Shah. And my, my son was like, oh, my God, you mm-hmm. know him, you know. So that that's really impressive. Um, but they're super into their dad being an inventor. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that he, the product that he makes is a light-up keyboard that teaches you how to play piano. And they've been using it to learn to play piano, especially during lockdown. So, I mean, they're like so, so much more impressed with him than with me. But, you know, I'll get there. I'll sneak in there at some point. You know, maybe, maybe someone will recognize me or something will happen. Um, Hold on one second, Nikesh, because someone's trying to call me. And I just want to make sure that our recording is not being interrupted. I don't know how to make it go away. Oh, it's still going. It's still going. It's all good. Okay. Um, sorry about that. But yes, not <laughs> impressed with me, very impressed with their dad. I'm just going to have to suck it up and hope that at some point, you know, they'll read my books and, and, uh, and how, yeah. How do you, how do you feel about them reading your, your books? I mean, obviously the first three deal with, um, you know, 
loads of really hard-hitting political stuff and this is kind of you know this is a really like a brilliant satire about like the last bunch of years of your life um not not your life you're not your life the, yeah, the sort I of mean, the inv- like the, it, yeah, it's, it's very yeah. easy for people to project onto project onto you like usher because because of absolutely sort of- yeah and there's totally and and i mean i didn't have the guts to write a memoir like you did and i completely respect that so much and i know how i mean i can't imagine how much you must feel like your heart is just out there in the world and they're going to someday read that um, but there are lots of very personal articles. I wrote a piece in The Guardian about my son's eating disorder, and he's gonna. And I definitely read it thinking someday he's gonna read this. I mean, I wrote it thinking someday he's gonna read this, and just wanting to make sure that that was not gonna be too much of a difficult experience for him. Um, my friend's ten-year-old daughter read The Startup Wife, <laughs> so she sent me a picture saying my daughter's reading it, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of sex <laughs> in the book, right? And there's also like. There's sex, there's, you know, startups that talk about sex, there's a startup that makes vibrators. I mean, there's a lot in there. Um, And she was like, yeah, you know, my daughter's really, we've been talking about it all the way through. Um, I definitely don't think my children will be ready by the time they're 10, (laughs) certainly not my son. Um, So I'm going to try to have to hide it from them till they're teenagers. Um, And then just, yeah, hopefully keep enough of an open dialogue so that we can, they can be reading and... Um, talking, asking me questions at the same time. I, I, how do you feel about Brown Baby and when you feel like your kids... Because there's so much there about your mother and your grief and raising them. I mean, it's like deeply, deeply personal and it's nonfiction. So there's just that much more exposure I there. don't know if they'll ever need to read it. Like if I raise them in the way that I want them to be, then all of the stuff that's in there, wow. they will already just know. Um, and And also, I think part of them would just be horrified and cringe at the whole thing anyway i really remember um sorry I, again I've, I've used this example as well but um i remember my ex-girlfriend was roommates uh, at college with she was american with the daughter of a really great piece of american literature well which i'll tell you the name of it off, offline um and when i was like oh my god that's your dad you know when i was like 20 and I was yeah. like oh my god a writer this is what I want to do at some point and she was just like oh yeah, yeah it's really embarrassing and 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 I, I when someone <laughs> asked me in an interview I remembered that moment I was like that's probably how they'll react you know um I think it's good because they see you yeah. as a person first and as a as the figure the public figure yeah. um second so that's that's probably I, the right Right, I'm working on a things. children's book at the moment, which they're very excited about. And when I was telling them about about it, and I was sort of expressing like, "Oh, it's quite hard to do this and this and this," my daughter just described. Um, she said, "You should include this character that is X, Y, and Z." And it was such a perfect description. I was like, "Well, that's now the villain of the piece." So that that was really cool. Wow! Yeah, it was really Amazing. lovely. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, okay, so. The reason I wrote the book and the reason I started the podcast is because there's just there's one question at the heart of them that I, I always try and ask my guests because it's just like an ongoing bit of inquiry for me. The thing that keeps me up at night is how on earth do we raise our kids to be joyful and boundless in a world that is so bleak and fucked and I personally feel so sad and angry all the time staring at the news. Um, and I wondered how you manage that, how you get through those days and how that affects how you are as a parent. I keep knocking this. That is such a great question. I I always love that question at the end of your podcast and people have answered it more intelligently than I can. I mean, I think the question for me really is how do we talk Mm. about injustice? You know, I think that it is so essential for our children to understand that the world is fundamentally Mm. unfair And that the reason that their lives are not unfair is because they live lives of enormous privilege. And so I think it's, but obviously we want them to experience joy and not be completely swallowed and swamped by that sense of the the knowledge that they are part of a system that, you know, creates suffering for for others while it creates joy for them. Um, So I don't know if I'm answering that well, but I I think conversations about, I mean, conversations about injustice are absolutely essential and conversations about privilege and then but and I think 
on the other hand, giving our children joy is so damn easy for us. We can buy them whatever they want. We can give them security. They have a roof over their head. I mean, I feel like, I feel the opposite. I feel like I want to give them a little taste or a little understanding of what life is like for everybody else. Um, so it's just trying to strike that balance, really. That's amazing. I think that's the first time, that's the first, you're the first person who's phrased it like that. And I think that is so important. Like, you're right, that the sort of leaning into thinking about ensuring that they know that they're okay like they, they're aware in a way that that makes sense to them in the world um you know quite often whenever i've talked to them about things like racism and sexism i've found myself me bringing myself into the conversation and like everything that i've sort of witnessed or experienced and um or even done in some cases and um I, re- I have to always remember to kind of take myself out of the conversation and just sort of try and see the world through their eyes and it is okay to present a binary world where racism is really bad and fucked and sexism is really bad and fucked and none of them make sense and yet they exist very prevalently yeah absolutely no, that's a beautiful way of putting it um, it's b- because they mm. think in such black and white terms and they would say to you well if it's unfair then why does it exist and that's yes. the really hard thing to try to explain is that something that is deeply fucked up is actually an essential part of the way yeah. the world works. How that happened and, and why it's, yeah, um, that's very, yeah. very confusing yeah. for them. How do you essentially tell children people are bad, <laughs> people are bad people. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So finally, what's, what is, the best advice you've been given as a parent and what's the most useless advice you've been given as a parent bonus points if it's the same bit of advice but... <laughs> oh my God. so the bet uh, the best piece of advice is actually a really really small thing which was somebody told me to put my children to bed at seven o'clock at night and it was the it has saved my sanity it has saved my marriage it has saved you know like because I grew up in a in a South Asian culture where the children just don't go to bed. They stay awake the whole time. And they're always awake when you're awake. And I think having a few hours of the day when I'm awake and my children are asleep has been really essential to the preservation of myself as an individual. Whereas at all other hours of the day, I'm present as a parent as well as an individual. Um, so that was a great piece of advice. However, it's also quite useless (laughs) because sometimes you just have to be flexible. And I really, in the first five years of parenting was super uptight about seven o'clock bedtime. I drove everyone crazy. And looking back, maybe I should have just chilled out and been like, Hey, it's okay. If it's, you know, late. So I think, I think the thing with parenting is you kind of have to learn to roll with the punches and um, not try to exert too much control, which is hard for me. I'm a bit of a (laughs) control freak. Thank you so much for coming on the Brown Baby Podcast. Thank you, Nikesh. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing the space with me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to ACAST. Thank you to Tamima. Thank you to Canongate, her publisher. Thank you to my publisher, Bluebird. Thank you to all of you listeners. Thank you to all of the listeners who listen to this in years to come. Thank you to all of you. Just thank you. Just thank you. Uh, But mostly, thank you to the food truck last week that sold me a hopper with nutella and banana and i ate it looking out across the bay of the north coast of devon thank you you helped me find my happy place see you next week everyone goodbye goodbye my brown babies goodbye my brown babies i love you my brown babies so much planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.